This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's the 2nd of May. It's Bank Holiday Monday. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast, my last breakfast show of the school year. And today I'm talking about the endless alleged death of edgy Twitter, why it might seem that way to some of you, and how it isn't really dead at all or anything close to it. Sing along for my last time this school year. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Lovely to see some very familiar faces appearing already, shaking that chalk, which I read your username wrong for a full year. I thought it was shacking that chalk and it was some kind of like tribute to Zulu Dawn or something. Uh, June, who doesn't have a headphones, who can't log in today. My beloved fiance, Sebastian J. Carroll in the house. Well done for waking up on a bank holiday Monday. Lucy, nice to see you too. Right, I promised EduTwitter, um, those of you who are awake and paying attention, that I was going to start this discussion of why EduTwitter might seem like it's dead, where we go wrong or what happens in the um, netnography word I learned today, netnography of online communities and spaces where people get very, very emotionally invested in issues, um, but also personally invested by telling you a story that took place 18 years ago in an internet far, far away. This is the story about the baby group I joined in 2004, shortly after my child was born. So I'll, I'll be reading to you. Feel free to interrupt. I've, I've written this up for you, you lucky people, rather than just wave my hands and try it. So what you need to understand about baby boards, and June and Lucy might have been on them, um, lots of people discussing it this morning when I mentioned it, is that when a person gets pregnant, she likes to hang out online with other people who all got pregnant at the same time, so they can weep, bond, share, and send each other daily affirmations in the form of smiley faces and cyber hugs. It's it's relentless, and, and there's this, this hideous sort of undercurrent of desperately waiting for as as about a quarter of the women drop out in the first couple of months as their pregnancies come to a tragic end or their pregnancies turn out never to have actually existed at all. There were false positives or, or something, but that's, that's this intense community. And then after the babies are born, many cute online baby competitions can be entered. And more importantly, all of the baby board women can be exhorted to visit these online competitions and please, friends, Go and vote for specific infants, please, for the love of God. <laughs> June is saying, yeah, because obviously you have loads in common because you grow a human. You have literally nothing in common with any of these people except that you all got pregnant in the same month, which is an intensely intimate, disorienting thing to have in common with people um, until you have those babies. And then it becomes almost immediately obsolete. Lucy's saying, I was just grumpy and sick when pregnant, no contact with anyone. Yeah, I was isolated in the United States. We didn't have anything like the Lash League or, you know, those sort of NHS parenting support groups that you have in the UK. So it was just me 
and and a dingy little row house in in the outskirts of Philadelphia. <laughs> June is pointing out actually the main thing here is finding out that you all had sex at the same time. Well, that's something you have in common, June. I'm amazed we didn't discuss that more on these baby boards. Um, but because it is unbearably boring and awful almost immediately, um, the websites that host these underworlds of smiling and viciously corrupt vote solicitation also offer bulleted boards on which to argue about everything in the world. So Mumsnet, I've never really been into, but it very much does those things too. Hello, Carolina, who's with us today, going to be leaving to get her bathroom fixed, which is a, a small but enormous tragedy, which has racked her life for the last couple of weeks. So well done you. Um, what kind of boards could you find on these baby boards? Mine was Baby Center, which I'm not even sure if it still existed. But again, this is the 2004 iteration. You could go argue about breastfeeding versus formula feeding, which, my God, is a fight that can end up with people's eyes being ripped out. Um, whether or not one should put one's child in a crib or instead strap it to one's chest and not take it off until it is two. Definitely people on both sides of those positions. Stories that are in the news. And then for me, election 2004. Because a person who's being driven out of her mind with boredom and frustration, babies are the most boring things on earth, people, can get quickly addicted to any of these. And if that person is me, the addiction of choice is politics. So election 2004 was an American board and therefore uniquely nationally characterized in flavor in a way that you'll understand when I start going through some of the usernames. It was, it was full of women with screen names such as Mommy to Four, Heart Jesus, Love in Jesus, Five in New Jersey, David's Mommy, almost all of them stay at home mothers and almost all of them unhingedly intense on the subjects at hand. So the level of sophistication was always also completely unflat, let's put it that way, so that it would range happily and in the same thread from 2000 word treatises on the history of US foreign policy in Taiwan to simple declarations of political faith based on what Jesus or someone's husband had said recently. Um, <laughs> ah, Lucy's saying, we're just talking about everyone being pregnant at the same time, that her friend was doing sex ed with upper six and saw the look in their eyes when they looked at her pregnant belly and realized. <laughs> and Zoe's saying, you should see how rough things get on forums about wedding planning. Do not question the brides to be. <laughs> yeah, yummy mummy, Carolina. No one, no one says that. They're profoundly sexist, sexless places. You are someone's mother. You are the the. There's an awful lot of in the American ones. There's an awful lot of Dominion theology. So you end up socialising with women who think that their husbands have the right to lead them and speak and control the finances, and you just end up socialising with people I would never, ever normally meet in, in real life. So the bulletin board got closed a few days after the election, but we were all completely addicted. And so we decamped to a new board called, shockingly, after the election. Um, and then everything got very odd. And this is a very odd that happens in every single one of these groups. So <laughs> secret parallel boards got set up in which the conservatives and the liberals plotted against each other, established multiple covert identities, attempted to infiltrate one another by having those covert identities make friends with political rivals, or sometimes by deploying poorly understood and worse realized computer espionage techniques. I'd say at least once a week, one of the people who was nominally on my side would set up an account pretending to be a 
brand new trad Christian mom of Billy and and my seven children and attempt to infiltrate her way into their secret chat boards. Um, then there was a huge fight. People cried. The liberals all left on block. There was a mass flouncing. Heidi was talking about mass flouncings from her baby board. Um, and then all of the DMs got leaked by the administrators. So everyone was able to go in and see what rude things they've been saying about each other's children. Shout out to Shannon still, who read what I'd said about her kids and carried on talking to me for another year. Um, and then returned in time for another bulletin board. Now, that one, Life's Issues, is a bit like where I feel with Edu Twitter right now. The people who I'm never gonna talk to who hate me, we just don't talk to each other. And the people who I've been around the block with in arguments for two or three times, we've kind of developed, what I like to think foolishly, a respect for each other. Um, we might not agree with each other at all, uh, shaking that chalk. I could not disagree more with his particular classroom style and philosophy, but I don't. That's just because I wouldn't do it for me. I think that he's a perfectly sane, rational, compassionate, wonderful teacher. All right, so that kind of happened. That's what happened on the board too. But then what happened on the board is really quite the remarkable thing. And it's why I live in England now, which is that one by one, um, <laughs> people began having affairs with one another's husbands and or getting divorced. So that of the 40 regular posters, by the time this had all finished playing out 18 months later, 10 of us were divorced. Um, my husband had first run off with Love and Jesus in Texas, but then it turned out she was having an affair with um, Bob from New Jersey, who left his six children to go make some more with her. And my husband then moved on to a woman I'm, I'm quite good friends now with, believe it or not, um, who had long blonde hair that went all the way down to her bum, was Jehovah's Witness in a Dominion Christian relationship, and yet ran off with him to have another three babies. And then he eventually ran off with someone else. And this played out across the United States in um, every sector of, uh, of economic you know, income, like military backgrounds, religious backgrounds, secular backgrounds, people with, from grad school, people who dropped out of university. We just, we just spent too long with each other. And when you spend too long with each other, terrible, terrible things happen. Eugene is saying, is this the future of Edu Twitter? Well, maybe Eugene. Just wait, Tyler. We've we've already got one, you know, edgy Twitter couple. We've got Gwen and Andrew. They met through edgy Twitter. There must be more of them out there. <laughs> June is saying, "How do people who have small children have time to have affairs?" Well, June, they do it online, so that's how they can do it while they're DMing on the background of the <laughs> just being organised. <laughs> I also think it's contagious, um, the phenomenon, the one person announced that they were breaking up and then you saw all these people. It's a terrible, having toddlers is a terrible time for marriages or any kind of relationship. That's when they're most likely to fall apart. And if some people start searching for exits at that point, then there's a, there's a rush for the exits. So yeah, so, so we are not, as I was discussing with some people this morning, still particularly friends with each other. There are individual friendships, there are some small networks, but obviously you can't maintain that kind of cohesive group identity when at least five of you have run off with each other's partners. That's just, it's just not gonna happen. Um, so that then made me go and look this morning, up far too early, at um, cyber ethnography, uh, 
because so this was 2004 I had met my first husband in 1998 on Yahoo personals of all glamorous places so I am of that age where uh, my mother kind of was at the vanguard of starting um <laughs> starting some of you know about this I'm not going to mention it on air what exactly it was that she did but she became quite important in in founding um the whole fanfic movement and uh you know her ship magazines profiles written about her in various places she's still got friends vaguely from around the world connected to her from that time but you know we we were the the seething heart of the cyber revolution me and these ladies in texas and my mother and her her weird stories about the x-files and uh yeah and so anything from that period had the word cyber in front of it so cyber ethnography began appearing <laughs> Caroline is saying, oh my, I'm so glad I decided not to have kids. And yet I feel fear of missing out. None of this is about the children, Carolina. You you too can get involved in an in, insanely bitchy, overcomplicated, deeply emotionally invested internet group of people who really have nothing in common apart from their occupation. Oh wait, you're already in that, aren't you? So there you go. <laughs> you could join a bathroom forum, says June. <laughs> uh, so I went and looked at um, I went and looked at cyber ethnography, which is what they were calling it in the nineties. I did a master's degree on cyborg theory in nineteen ninety five, and like literally everything just had cyber in front of it, and people thought it was going to be the most amazing new world. So we had our, our mortal flesh bodies, our wetware that just sat around and did nothing, but that was going to be fused with our vaporware, our, our souls and our techs. And it, it was a radical change in human promise in 1995. Of course, it really has just allowed us to be human on larger scales across bigger networks, which is what Edu Twitter is. So I'm abandoning cyber ethnography or cybernography. I'm going to um, applied netnography, which whose main champion is uh, Robert V. Kozinets, who invented the term in 1995 in his dissertation He's careful to tell us. I'm telling you, 1995, we all went distinctly mad for the internet and how it was going to change the world. Um, and in applied netnography, online communities are not simply an extension of the cultural communications of people's everyday life worlds, but also an augmentation that transforms and is transformed by the transmission in particular ways. The online environment mediates messages, allows archiving, accommodates accessibility, and optionally permits pseudonymity or even anonymity. So if we're thinking about edu Twitter and why it works and why it doesn't, I've got a lot of different approaches here. I think it's really crucial for us to start from the idea that it is a distinct thing, that it is a universe that's meaningful in and of itself, an environment in and of itself that can be studied rather than simply a sort of extension of our everyday lives. Because well, <laughs> I'll just give you a little anecdote that two of my co-workers now have gone off to various things, one to an interview, one to, to just to drinks with someone. And at some point, a person has said to them, oh, my God, do you work with Tabitha McIntosh like I'm famous? <laughs> like, I am a weird part-time teacher with terrible organizational skills and a very big vocabulary. I'm not a celebrity at my school. But the version of me that exists on edgy Twitter, <laughs> infamous, says Eugene, is uh, very much so. June saying that it's like real life, but more so because there's zero accountability. Well, that's something we're going to discuss about accountability, social capital, 
how it works, why it works. Um, I ended up here on Edgy Twitter with my name, my real name attached to me because I started off in academic Twitter where it's, it's kind of like I did it quite strategically for networking with other academics and building sensible conversations. So I was tied to my real name before I walked into Edu Twitter in 2020 and um, immediately got into fights with literally everyone in the entire world. And yeah, Eugene's saying, yes, there's accountability. I know Gwen has talked about, you know, like her tweets being put into her senior manager's pigeonholes. Uh, as June is saying, not if you're anonymous, Eugene. Ah, there's a user named Provoke Pedagogue June who'd like to tell you all about the ability to be anonymous online without consequences. Beth saying, Tabitha getting into fights, surely not. Yeah, I don't think of myself as a fighter, but um, that's quite self-evidently wrong. Um, so this one, this is a report. Um, there's, there's two dis distinct things here. There's this, this, when we were discussing it this weekend, there's lots of people talking about the incredibly valuable information sharing, professional development and stuff created by Edgy Twitter. And so I'll start with um, Fernando Rossell Aguiar's 2018 kind of professional development and community of practice tool for teachings paper. So he's like, he does an overview of all the studies, looking at how teachers are using Twitter for CPD, because we, you know, that that's what people say. You say to your NQTs, you should join Edu Twitter. There's so many resources there. Or one of my co-workers just gave me a side eye the other day and said she joined Edu Twitter in order to get some resources and <laughs> come across me. <laughs> Sorry. Right. So um what when we're approaching this in this kind of like ideal we can all talk about things there. Um so again uh, Rosella Guiar has got this like huge kind of coverage of what's going on, looking at CPD um, and some highlights from all the studies over the last 10 years. Um, noting the fact, though, that there was, as in 2017, like a lack of research exploring professional development and social media across different contexts for teachers. So what he's done here is then pull it all together. So the reason why teachers report in at least seven studies that they use Twitter for CPD and why they will continue to, why it will never die, is because it's flexible, there's a lack of cost, it's accessible, and it's relevant to professional development. Um, however, that comes along with, they report, information overload or feeling intimidated and overwhelmed. Um, several studies, I'm not going to list the names because life is too short, say that Twitter is an effective tool for professional development. Um, people report that the professional activity they carry out on Twitter has an impact in their classroom practice, as well as on the development of their own professional knowledge. Um, other participants, and this is, again, the kind of separate direction this is pulling us into, report developing a network with fellow teachers. Um, one study shows how ideas and resources that teachers found through Twitter had an impact on their classroom practice and the relationships they develop with other teachers help them combat isolation and find a positive community. So two distinct things emerging there that are overwhelmingly positive and don't talk about any of the sort of negative effects. Yeah, Beth is saying I count my time on Twitter as part of my CPD time. I have 10 hours per week outside of school time for planning, assessing, and CPD. Now, I can certainly use Twitter for that. That's not really how I use Twitter, though. But if we look at this, it's still very much a form of CPD, which is professional relationship building, 
is still CPD. So both of those things are important. And um, with teachers, we're endlessly lately talking about CPD. The ENSAs talk about it a lot. And we're all talking about trying to make CPD more useful. Building communities of teachers and sharing ideas is a lot more efficient use of your time than, you know, it's like a boutique CPD option. Um, other series of sources, one in 2016 found teachers were finding useful sources of information inspired by the connection to other educators. So I reviewed a book on um, concept-led curriculum in English the other day. And one of the main things that they stressed that I thought was incredibly useful was that we just don't have time to talk to each other in school. Very, very few professional conversations whatsoever. So instead of those professional conversations happening in our settings, in our departments, um, for those of us who rely heavily on EduTwister, they're happening outside, which does result in these really weird mismatches where, you know, when the pandemic, when the, the seating occasioned by the pandemic was over, I very confidently just assumed everyone's staying with Rose. I like Rose, EduTwister likes Rose, everyone in the universe likes Rose. Everybody else in my department put their rooms straight back into tables straight back into tables and i was like oh but haven't you seen there's edu twitter consensus on that well no they haven't because they're not on edu twitter so we do live in this odd virtual world and then the virtual school communities we build don't necessarily have much relationship to the schools in which we work although they can um shaking that chalk is saying twitter is great for word of mouth research papers and for asking questions provided one has a sizable following or someone retweets for an audience in this sense, personal directions of interest can be pursued, but all the, I'll amend the language, no swearing, all the bullcrap crap out there. Right, now, after, I'm going to carry on talking about this very positive, sort of neutral, not particularly nuanced way of understanding Twitter as a source of CPD and community building, and then look at um, a PhD thesis which came out in 2020, excellent piece of work about social capital and how actually the size of accounts um, shapes research narratives and, and all those things. So that goes straight to what Shaking That Chalk is pointing out, which all of us who use EduTwitter are familiar with. We all know these like small follower accounts. There was one yesterday who was just in despair saying, you know, I feel like my tweets are disappearing into the void. I'd really like some help on assemblies. And, and you need a, a 5,000 follower account to retweet that to make it meaningful. So it's not that you can just ask for help on Twitter. It very much depends on what kind of network you're leveraging and what kind of visibility the algorithm is giving you. As, as we all know, we all remember being like that. No, you can swear, Shay. Swear away. I'll just edit it in, um, in my reading. Um, <clears throat> so again, this, this big, lovely overview, and I'll put a link up if anyone's interested. Um, again, it's doing a, a meta study of, of all of the studies of how teachers are using Twitter. Some authors highlight the value of social media, Twitter in particular, for connecting new or in-training teaching with peers and more experienced ones to engage in professional conversations. That's really interesting. Um, there's another one particular case, Lord and Lomica, um, where teachers in training shared experiences with fellow students and mentors with very positive results. So a very deliberate and strategic use of Twitter where um, teacher trainers or mentors in educational settings are hooking up their, you know, early career teachers with specific tweeters or specific groups of tweeters in order to model for them that they can learn how to make connections, have professional conversations, and also gain access to that those resources and that world of resources. 
again, none of that sounds like my experience of edgy Twitter, right? I think that, that when we talk about edgy Twitter being dead, we are often talking from incredibly situated perspectives where, you know, yeah, well, we'll, we'll get to more of that. Uh, one study had eight teachers, eight teaching education students placed in schools in different locations and connected them with each other. So that's that's a really nice thing. I know Teach First doesn't really do that as far as I can tell, um, not quite, or at least the, the person I know in Teach First who's going in, to some extent she does it, but she tries to access teacher networks outside of Teach First because that comes, of course, to our issue of scrutiny. They get training in Teach First, as I'm sure they do everywhere, about what not to put on social media. So it becomes a very fine line about, you know, bringing down the brand versus gaining the kind of networking you want. So yeah, as June is saying, users have to be wary. And yeah, sometimes large accounts with big influences take conversations in odd pedagogical directions, says June. Yeah, and that's, I think that's really interesting to think about. And I, when I first joined Edu Twitter again, two years ago now, seems like forever, but it was only two years ago, some things were overwhelmingly everywhere. And some particular people, presumably because of the, the size of the people who have been talking about them and interested in them. And one of them was dual coding. And I don't mean, you know, just putting images on things or using graphics in order to explain processes or, or helping EAL students. The very specific idea that there are two channels for informational input into the brain, one image, one verbal, and that by combining those two inputs in your revision resources, you can sort of double the effectiveness of your revision stuff. Um, that was everywhere when I first came, and now that's gone. You know, like people obviously still use images, but that, that particular idea as expressed in a particular set of resources, well, I've said this before, and then someone said, you realize that all the dual coding people just blocked you, Macintosh, oh, well, <laughs> potentially, potentially that's what happened, but I, I do think that has genuinely disappeared. Instructional coaching appeared, is, is with us now. Um, Sam Strickland said this morning, quite plaintively, there is nothing new about instructional coaching. Why are you all talking about it like it's something new? Well, it is something new on edgy Twitter. It's, it's something new in the world. Um, yeah, and then as June's pointing out, as we'll point out, we have these vast flouncy rifts and mass blocking events that really shape how pedagogy works and are the kind of thing that often leads us to say, edgy Twitter might be dead. But again, I think not everyone's even experiencing that same edgy Twitter, just those of us fighting about Animal Farm. Right, I'm going to play the news. And when I come back, we're going to look a bit more at this idea of social capital. And um, I would love it if some of you called in with your thoughts. And Carolina's saying, yeah, if you're half smart, you'll realise these things pretty soon. So let's, uh, let's listen to the news and become even smarter by learning stuff. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more.
imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Michael Fabricant, a Conservative MP for Staffordshire, who suggested teachers enjoyed a quiet drink in the staff room during COVID lockdown, during a BBC interview, has apologised. The Lichfield MP has written a response to the National Association of Head Teachers to explain that it had not been his intention to cause offence or demoralise anyone. Paul Whiteman, General Secretary of the NAHT, said the MP's words were wholly inaccurate and deeply insulting. In his letter, Mr Fabricant states, I thought it might be helpful if I make it clear that it was not my intention to cause offence, let alone demoralise anyone, as some have suggested. And I apologise if I have genuinely done so. I applaud the work of nurses, GPs and others in the medical and teaching profession who worked long hours under difficult and sometimes impossible conditions during the height of the COVID pandemic to keep us all safe and to educate our children. We all have a debt to them, which will be difficult to repay. In a lengthy and wide-ranging interview with BBC Television News, I explained that I was neither judging nor chastising the minority of nurses or teachers who chose to unwind with a few work colleagues after a long shift. Nor did I suggest they were drunk. I know none who were so. 
In England, the Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi, launched his Education Sustainability Vision at the Natural History Museum on Thursday evening last week. £11,480 was paid to Taste Studios to provide the food, working out at £48 per head. A spokesperson said, The launch brought together individuals and organisations who can help us implement our strategy in order to galvanise support from them, whether through funding resources, driving public support and awareness, or encouraging youth engagement. The government said that it had to use a caterer from the museum's list of accredited suppliers. Staff were asked not to eat or drink at the event as they were there for work and not as invitees. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, last week I told you about security certificates and how the padlock is not a symbol of a website being secure, but the transmission being encrypted. This week we go a step further and ask how do criminals use this against us? They use something called a subdomain. Just as the prefix sub means below or under, the subdomain is a key to this scam, and it can look legitimate to the untrained eye. Subdomains are a way to divide a website into more manageable chunks. For example, for TT Radio, a subdomain could be named Listen. This would read www.listen.ttradio.org. This could be pointed at somewhere other than the main website, for example, Podbean, and allow simple redirection for the user of the website. The issue we face is cyber criminals understand subdomain system and exploit it. So if I were to buy a domain called bank.com and create a subdomain for all popular banks in the UK or even the world, and obviously buy a security certificate, I could create copies of banks' web pages on each subdomain and the address would read, for example, HTTPS, oh, it's secure, www.halifax.bank.com. The difference being you're now going to a subsection of my website, bank.com, which happens to be named after a bank. I now start a campaign of emails and texts with a warning to as many people as I possibly can. To make you panic and click without thinking too much, I also add a bit of time pressure into the mix. How does this sound? Halifax Alert, you've just paid Steve Woods £500. If this transaction was not organised by you, you have five minutes to log in and cancel. I'm even kind enough to give you the link. HTTPS www.halifax.bank.com From there, I collect your login details and empty your bank clever in it how do we stop this always contact your bank directly not through a link that is sent to you if unsure stop and think as always don't forget to check out the tt radio 2022 twitter feed tell us what you want to know about tech i'm steve woods and that was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio and we're back um, it is me, Tabitha McIntosh, and all of you, uh, people who are on bank holiday. Thank you for being here. A uh, couple of questions from Eugene and Jasmine Lane while those questions were coming in. Um, Eugene says, how much of Edu Twitter is influenced by capitalism? And Jasmine answers that with, you get on Twitter, build a brand, write a book, and sell it. And then Patrick over on, um, Patrick Craig over on Twitter said um, there was a tweet recently where someone was like, oh, for the good old days of the message boards, 
And then many, many replies on what a bin fire boards were, including women who were, you know, fully groomed on boards. There, there have been sexual assault cases coming out of edgy Twitter, right? as, as there are coming out of every community that interacts. And um, so all of those things in mind, the capitalism provocation, the are people just here to sell brands provocation, or that does that become brand sales and, and monetization? Does that become an important part of it? Um, let's compare that to go back to Fernando Rossell Aguiar's positively utopian, Edenic version of, of CPD and Twitter. He says, um, sell like a champion, says Jasmine. Uh-huh. He says, uh, the way you build a unique personalized learner learning platform on Twitter is by checking who else follows you um, and who you're, who you, by choosing who to follow, whose tweets they retweet, selecting similar people to follow. Um, this one particular group of people describe that as a uniquely personalized, complex system of interactions consisting of people, resources, and digital tools that support online learning and professional growth. Um, it's characterized by shared Twitter hashtags, which can become, this is, this is going to make you cringe, digital affinity spaces that allow teachers to engage with conversation, mentoring, and resource sharing uh, so that the Twitter you know, personal learning network is linked to the concept of social presence as online representation of the self, which can be a key factor in facilitating collaborative learning and developing online communities. Uh, another very, very utopian positive sort of study says that social presence serves as the basis for building successful communities of inquiry and other dimensions of cognitive and teaching practice. Ferguson in 2010 calls it a community built on communication and collaboration dedicated to making learning and education the best they can be. Um, another group of people calling it groups of people who share a concern, a set of problems or a passion about a topic and who deepen their knowledge and expertise in this area by interacting on an ongoing basis. Right. Is that untrue of edgy Twitter? Is it untrue of research ed? Right. Is it untrue of all of the sort of teacher voices? Zoe Ensa pointed out um, to someone yesterday that teachers have voices now in a way that they certainly didn't say when the national curriculum was introduced by fiat and it was, you know, it came from central government. You rarely had a chance to even see it in its consultation phases and, the phases. and then when you were like my mother, just trained to teach in, in 91, 92, you were handed a folder of, of everything you were supposed to think. So that, um, yeah, edgy Twitter and etc. To allow allow huge collaborative communities. <laughs> yes, yeah, Zoe's saying we could say nothing. Well, there and there's been points at which we could say nothing, quite literally, and now we can say something. So I don't, I don't think anyone. Well, people might be arguing that that this is all a sham and a lie. But I think this utopian vision of what um, Twitter can offer um, to research communities of interested professionals, all operating sort of democratically in a community based on chosen interest is not untrue. It just goes hand in hand with other things. Um, one thing, one very basic thing is that if you're feeling like if you've been doing this a long time, if you've been teaching a long time and you're beginning to feel like this doesn't really feel for me anymore, it's, it's, there's a very good reason why edgy Twitter starts seeming limited like that for aging teachers such as myself who are 50. We're right to suspect that we're increasingly unusual on the platform because we are unusual on the platform. 
Twitter is not a popular social media platform in particular compared to Facebook, but um, especially for older users. So I don't think that there is a handful of, of teachers that I regularly interact with who are my age or older, but the vast majority of teachers on Twitter, as indeed the vast majority of teachers in the profession, are below the age of 50. So, you know, that has an impact for a start. And they're also aging teachers are blossoming teachers, so shaking that torch. Teachers' reach is still limited, says Zoe. Yes, it becomes a battle to be heard among the noise. Absolutely. So the kind of paradox of being an older, more experienced teacher is that you might have a much bigger kind of voice if we, when we look at this social capital argument for Twitter in a minute, which I think is much more nuanced than the utopian ones. But, um, but there are constantly younger teachers or, or new teachers coming into the profession who have not had these conversations before. Um, Jasmine's saying, Beth is saying, DMs are another world that I don't understand. Uh, Sarah's saying, I've made some great friends via DM. Jasmine's explaining to Beth, yeah, it's basically just texting, except the, the role of those parallel private communications to public discourse is, is, you know, what bonded us all on my baby board 18 years ago, but also what allowed it to become incredibly toxic and, and explosive, um, because that's when people amplify each other's, you know. I, I, know, I know of one, one that Patrick was in that he didn't give me details of, he just announced one day that his board had exploded. The, the, the chat group had exploded. I know Shake's been in boards in chat groups that exploded. I think we've all been in, in chat boards where someone flounced. I flounced out of a chat group I was in relatively recently. Yeah, Carolina's saying, I just find it hilarious that some people from Edu Twitter consider themselves famous. I mean, it's a tiny percentage of teachers who are on Twitter. And amongst those, it's not that others outside of it interact much with us. No, exactly. In fact, there's statistics, and I put them up on the... the um, the promo for this show this morning show that of, of the social media platforms, the time that people interact with them, the Ofcom studies from 2021 showed that Twitter users interact with Twitter for four minutes per day on average, whereas Facebook is 29 minutes per day on average. I would, my counterpoint to that would be that the people who interact most heavily on Twitter, um, who you get to talk to or interact with are journalists overwhelmingly, an awful lot of politicians. So even though most of the country is not engaged and most of the country that does have an account is not engaging, those people that are engaging are kind of temptingly high in social capital. There's an awful lot of high social capital potentially going around there. Yeah, Zoe's saying, I think there are a few who believe they're famous is small. Often it's others who talk about that. Yeah, don't you know who I am? So I have 12.1 thousand followers. I must be important. Just, just embarrassing. <laughs> um, so the social capital and edu Twitter argument. Um, there's a very, very different study. This is a PhD thesis on edu Twitter uh, written by Lucy Ann Galton in 2020. I don't believe she is on Twitter herself, or at least she wasn't when I, I just searched it. So I skimmed this this morning having um. <laughs> I'm definitely famous though, yeah, totally famous. Everyone should pay attention to me. Ooh, yay, someone at the door. Luckily my mother will get it. The secret of my um, radio broadcast is that my mother's always sitting in the background trying not to laugh or fall asleep or pass me notes going, you haven't played the advert yet. She's my producer and my, my main support in life. Um, so Lucy Golton's report on Edu Twitter is called Building Professional Capacity 
teachers information literacy practices in using Twitter submitted to the University of Manchester in 2020. Right. And it is <laughs> Hollywood are at the door. I say, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. Demille. June says, hi, mum. My mum says hi back. Um, so what's really, really good about Lucy Ann Galton's thesis is that she takes into account power and social dynamics instead of just looking at um, the flat profiles of networks. And what I mean by flat profiles of networks is the idea where in a flat network, everyone has equal opportunity to engage. So no one is more important than anyone else. That's the vision of Edu Twitter. Everybody can get involved. Um, everyone who's like-minded and shares a community can use the same hashtag, hashtag Team English. I think I tried using when I first came on here. Um, you know, and then there was the, the conference for Team English and stuff, and there's all kinds of things, but that anyone can join in. That's, and that's what kind of all those previous studies were suggesting was this very utopian, power-free, flat universe of relationships. Whereas what Lucy does is um, build the, co the concept of social capital into the heart of both looking at what's happening on Edu Twitter, but also explaining the benefits that teachers have from the network and to understanding professional development. So um, she, she's looking at a study from 2016 where um, they found that the personal networks of users, of teacher users, increase over time to allow individuals to gain increasing access to resources and knowledge. Some teachers gain and sustain a more central position in networks and, while able to access more sources of information, may let these individuals dominate and steer conversations in particular directions. I had not thought about it done that way, and it's kind of cold and clinical and a bit unnerving. But yes, there are resources available on EduTwitter. It's an you know, immensely generous community. But what Galton's pointing out is that actually being able to access those resources um, is something that is a power that accumulates the longer you're there and the bigger the network you build and the larger your social capital profile you build. So it's not the case that you can just stick out a tweet and say, can someone give me a reading list for this? Um, you, you won't get any traction at all whatsoever. So in fact, your position in the kind of relative hierarchy and social power of this loose network really makes a difference. So it kind of sounds like a, I don't know, almost a Dungeons and Dragons-y thing, right? allowing your professional networks to increase over time to allow you to gain increasing access to resource and knowledge. You get to unlock stuff like it's a video game. So the question she asks is how do individuals build social capital to facilitate information literacy using Twitter? Like how, how do you get it? How do you get there? Yeah, shaking that talk saying there's been a quite an engineering of debate on Twitter. Well, that's one thing where that DMs allow and DM groups allow, isn't it? Is that basically the framing of the debate will take place in a private conversation or can take place in a private conversation, um, whether it's real world or whether it's a, a parallel communication Twitter that's running kind of behind the public scenes. And then, you know, people will come out and talk about it. Patrick's not listening in, but Patrick and I... Um, in 2020 during the George Floyd kind of both response and very much a backlash on edgy Twitter um, we would talk to each other about particular arguments and then we would both appear on the mainstream of Twitter making those arguments and liking each other's tweets <laughs> like I, I wasn't intentional I, I just I reflected back on that and and think yeah that that's how it works for all of us so yeah Twitter was disgusting then Jasmine absolutely
battle plans laid down within GM communities, shaking that chalk is saying, absolutely. So specific ideas about taking things down. Um, so like if we look at some things that caused an enormous kind of stir over the weekend, um, some things just organically generate that kind of stir. That particular article in The Guardian about how science shouldn't be about the teaching of facts. I think every single science teacher and, and you know, knowledge-rich professional on Twitter had a take on that. There was no need for that to be planned in the background. But, um, yeah, everyone making friends with Jimmy Concepts, Jasmine's saying. Yeah. Hey, yes. Hi, Moomin. Eat Mubarak Moomin from both Shaking That Chalk and me and everyone. I saw you eating this morning. That was nice to see. <laughs> uh, next one. How do teachers use the affordances of Twitter to increase their professional capital? So once you've built the network to increase your social capital, um, what Gorton explores here is how Twitter that can then be used to manage the information made available. How are you kind of doing your information literacy practices in the information landscape to identify, store and extract information? and communicate this with others. Um, people get headhunted via Twitter. Uh, I, you know, People very much get headhunted via Twitter or build um, relationships that can allow networking where they'll um, you know, be more likely to get interviews or be asked to come to interviews. Uh, along with the idea that you know, Jasmine gave us as a provocation before the break that, that you know, when you very much then have, have a successful brand that you're selling that can be turned into a book. Yep. Hey, good morning to you, Claudie, who's saying wouldn't have my job without Twitter. Exactly. It's not a negative thing at all. Um, I think what the, the studies show that the, the vast majority of jobs are gained through network contacts. That's not, not in any kind of nepotistic sense. It's finding like-minded people and such like. I think, Jasmine, you know, your, your involvement with social media and blogging and, and the networks you run at the time very much had to do with the particular way you came to England and where you came to England. Um, Zoe's now saying, I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of the DM action. I get one or two DMs from people, but the only group I'm in is about PP in the Southeast to support funding issues. Billy no mates clearly. Um, DM groups are overwhelming. I find them quite hard to manage. I, I drop out of them and go back into them. Um, yeah, because it's just chaos, isn't it? Uh, Sam Elliott is always talking about, about some of us being born for, for digital chaos. So the people who were drawn to bulletin boards or like I was drawn to MySpace as he was as well, like who just can cope with an, an enormous amount of text coming in at once. And that's how we, we kind of live. That makes us feel alive living in our basic reality world. Yeah. Ariel's saying completely agree with Zoe. I didn't even realize was the thing. It's unnerving to realize it's a thing. It's unnerving to realize there's a parallel world. And um, there was an exchange between Zoe Enter and Jasmine yesterday, where Jasmine said, I'm just saying out loud what everyone says in DMs. And Zoe was like, huh, thank you for that. Um, and yeah, but I mean, there's, there's a way in which the kind of professional practices where you don't, it's not done to mock resources online. If someone has been kind and generous enough to put their resources up, then it's very much frowned upon and you will get pleased out of the community quite quickly um, if you openly mock them. Same thing with like school shaming. We have discussions around that. So we've established community norms about what's okay to do. In some senses, DM groups or conversations then become the way in which those reactions can happen without violating, you know, community norms. Yeah, Beth's saying I have about three DMs in the past year. 
Uh, ben Newmark, no DM groups for me. Makes it harder to think with my own brain. No judgment on people who are intrin- uh, who are nothing, nothing intrinsically wrong with them. Exactly. So um, just go back to uh, Gordon's thesis. Um, she then broke down how these like either quite quite new to Twitter or very established Twitter users should have sort of ethnography of four of them. And she broke down what they did on Twitter. So it was asking for help, sharing resources, promotion of event, humor, sharing information, requesting information, discussion of other teachers. That's an interesting one. Discussion of students, discussion around practice, attending or running events, retweeting, um, putting up cloud links, hashtags, images, and videos. But um, one of the users who she calls Rachel brings up another aspect when she talks about why use Twitter rather than Facebook? Because Facebook is cutthroat. Um, individuals can be removed from the entire group discussion if they offend, which brings into focus the aspect of gatekeeping in groups and communities. Facebook pages require an individual to allow other individuals to access the content and to monitor and restrict users, whereas Twitter does not have this role. So this removal in a Facebook group cuts off the individual's access to information from others. Twitter itself can do this because of a complaint procedure, but obviously we we can mute each other, we can block each other, but as, as everyone knows from screenshot wars, you can just log out and go look at what's being said so that the community cannot be gate kept in the same way. So to that extent, even if we're saying it's not a flat network, that there are you know clusters of power and things shaping conversations, everyone can still fundamentally have access to it. Edgy Facebook is brutal, says, says Claudie. Facebook is cutthroat. <laughs> Zoe says sometimes someone DMs me to say I'm going to inherit money from them. Moomin says I'm in some niche DM groups. I often feel I have very little to contribute, but not along and laugh at the jokes. Um, one thing I get is um, obviously anyone who's familiar with me on Twitter knows that I, I post a lot about transgender issues, um, about being the mother of a transgender child, about the treatment of trans issues in education. So I get an enormous number of DMs from people who are also parents of transgender children, but unwilling to say that in public on Twitter. Um, professors, teachers, other professionals, oh yeah, I just get quiet you know, conversations going on in the background. So that's another aspect of Twitter that, um, that I think we're, we're all familiar with, but often don't take into account in a huge variety of ways, is that people are reading what we're saying, whether or not we're engaged in you know, a big cutthroat individual exchange with someone or or in general the, the people actually reading what we're saying is far larger than the number of people with whom we're publicly engaging um when they were looking at this social capital thing um what gordon points out is that a lot of teachers join twitter because they do not feel they have social capital at school so again i talked earlier about how isolated people are in schools um about how we have very little time to talk or how you may be within power structures where you feel very specifically disempowered. And therefore, um, as Rachel, again, anonymous name of this, this subject of study in the book says, um, she's describing a lack of social capital in her current workplace that as she says, I want to be somewhere that appreciates me. So you can be loved on Twitter. Um, your ideas can be heard on Twitter. You can be living in a completely separate world really to your whole school setting. Uh, Zoe saying, maybe I'm either not controversial enough or just tend to say what I think only more nicely than if I was in the room. Yeah. Um, regarding the original blogging is dead, says Shaking That Chalk. 
it does feel that the debate is evolving. The narrowness of previous debate appears to be subsiding. I'm seeing a lot more conversation delving into nuance rather than defending a position. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I found frustrating entering Edu Twitter in 2020 was that, and, and everyone says that, and now I know that I am part of that problematic phenomenon, is that battle lines have been drawn. People have been fighting about the same things for, in my instance, two years, but in the instance of, of some of the, the veterans, 10 years or longer. So when you wander in as an innocent newbie to a, to a conversation about exclusions and autism, as I did early on, um, you are not prepared for the assumptions that are made about the position you're taking, the rage that can immediately pour forth, um, who you can be offending by liking someone's post or agreeing with a particular position, um, who you can therefore be dismissed by, how you can instantly get muted or blocked. Um, that is, is very, very difficult. Um, Zoe's saying I was very much without a voice at work and Twitter gave it back. This, I think it's really important when we're talking about the toxicity of Twitter or the things that seem limi limiting about Twitter or the things that make us say edgy Twitter's dead, to remember that it is constantly evolving. There's constant new entrants. And sometimes um, when we say edgy Twitter's dead, maybe that iteration of edgy Twitter is very much dead. Uh, June is pointing out sometimes within schools and federations, SLT can seem like a boys club and t Twitter can free teachers from this. Absolutely. So that there's a degree of, again, even though we go, if we, if we stick to remembering Gordon's point that actually these aren't flat, completely distributed democratic networks, they are much flatter than the hierarchical systems of schools. They do allow much more input into conversations and certainly can free you. I mean, quite aside from anything, you can be whoever you want to be on Twitter. You, you can unpin yourself from, you know, gender and ethnicity and place and space. And, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, Zoe's saying people that get upset that I will talk to people on any side. Been told off about that on Twitter many times. Um, I think once I sent a message to someone saying, did you know that this person you've just retweeted thinks X, Y, Z? And then after I'd done that, I thought that was just an awful thing to do. And I won't do that again. But again, that's a that's a learning process. Um, I've also had people say uh, in some of the particular kind of escalating conversations I've had about trans issues with some teachers who are, are, are not are much more hostile to transgender positions. I've had people write to me from outside of Edu Twitter going, do you understand who you're talking to? Do you understand? And uh, yes, and I want to have that conversation because it's not just that conversation. Other people are seeing that conversation. Yeah. Um, so if we go back to that, Rachel, who's describing her lack of social capital in her current workplace, but the ability of Twitter to offer it to her, um, we then get to conflict on Twitter, which, of course, blocking, muting and tweeting. I'm just going to read you a little bit from Gorton's thesis. Finding and following people does not just involve selecting people to follow, but making the judgments to reject individuals, choosing not to listen to them. This can be just as simple as ignoring tweets that the participant is not interested in, for example, about football, or as radical as blocking individuals. I block more this year alone than since I started in four years, one other participant, Dev, noted, saying that he thought the atmosphere had changed over time and this had led to an increased use of the blocking tool. I will put it to Dev, as, as I will put it to any of you, that um, <clears throat> the longer you stay on Edu Twitter, the more likely you are to get involved in conflict just because you, you've you built your social network um, 
you're more aware of social capital, you're more aware of those conflicts, and you end up being pulled into them. Whereas when you first turn up and you're like, can someone give me some resources about an assembly, that you're unlikely to end up being dogpiled or getting into a flame war with, you know, the behaviours are of the United Kingdom or whatnot. <coughs> Someone's saying here, um, a Hamill photos, edgy Twitter has been great to get me from the other side of the Irish Sea. Access to CPD is also spatially mediated. That's a beautiful point. If you live far from where the conferences happen, it can be hard to access the conversations. Twitter is spatially flat. Beautiful point, Alistair. Absolutely. And I think um, those of us who are disabled found um, during lockdown that, that that was quite staggeringly effective. That conf when conferences went online, not only did Twitter offer that kind of um, spatially flattened, geographically unmediated access to resources, but, but to all of those CPD and, and research opportunities. And then, of course, everyone's very excited about them going back face to face. But on academic Twitter, as on edu Twitter, there, there's a real sense of loss in some of that as well. June is saying, is there an algorithm Twitter that selects what you see the most? Yes, absolutely. Not quite sure how that works. Obviously, in fact, it's not an open algorithm. One of the things that our future overlord Elon Musk has promised is that he's going to put the um, algorithm on GitHub so we can all understand it. Because, of course, there's a there's a, a right-wing American conspiracy theorist, that theory that they're all being shadow banned, that the algorithm deliberately withholds their tweets so that they don't get much likes. But that does leave you, if you believe that, in the position of saying to people, not enough of you are liking my tweets, it must be censorship, which is a bit of a self-own, really. But there you go. Uh, Eugene saying, I deliberately follow people I disagree with as I don't think I know everything. I've written actually to Eugene before going, Eugene, why are you following this account? But that's because Eugene and I, in as much as if someone you've never met in real life is your friend, is my friend. And, um, and I was really like, what? Um, <clears throat> June is saying, if you ignore things, will they disappear? Yeah, essentially. Zoe's saying, I tend to walk away as opposed to block. However, some won't leave you alone and sometimes hound you. Yeah, I don't block. I block adverts. So I think I've got like 5,000 accounts blocked, but they're all Ericsson and, you know, things that have. But then people block me. So it's all very well and good to say, well, I never block anyone, but I can reliably predict that a whole group of people are going to remove themselves from my timeline without me having to do a single thing. Uh, yeah, Sarah's saying, I think it's so important, Eugene, to follow. Well, that what, what gets interesting here and what I think, um, what even this Gorton's incredibly, incredibly well done thesis is leaving out and what the other ones left out completely, the more positive ones, is they leave out the politics of it. Not just interpersonal, not interpersonal politics, because this is very much about this, but literal politics. So that really shapes what gets happening too. Claudie's saying one of my blog posts got seen 300 times and a tweet about MP shagging tractors got seen a thousand times, even though it had fewer retweets. Sam's always, um, Sam Elliott, who's now, of course, teaching in Dubai and therefore doesn't tweet really anymore because um, A, he's a head of department. Um, B, there's a high degree of scrutiny about social media in Dubai. You have no right to free speech and, and you can and will be arrested for things you say. So, so he no longer kind of engages so much. But he was fascinating on the subject of how engagement works on Twitter and edgy Twitter um, and it, about what gets seen. So, yeah, the, the, the shagging tractors, much more likely to get seen there, Claudie. Uh, Moomin's saying, is it just me or are coordinated pylons an actual thing? 
I'm talking about edgy Twitter effect. Yes, absolutely, yes. They're very much our coordinated pylons. Um, I wouldn't say that people sit there and go, right, let's go get this person. I would say that people, in a very natural way, share their outrage or their disagreement with something. And then all the people who feel in a like-minded way go and say it. And that is a pylon. The, the infamous problem I got into with uh, the social media, social media, the um, behaviours up two years ago. Um, it was a tweet. It had 14 likes. It had almost no views. And then the next morning, hundreds of people turned up to be angry at me at once. Now, I'm not, I wouldn't call that a coordinated pylon in a mean way. I think it's completely understandable. Some people who, who were really outraged by what I'd said um, shared their outrage with their friends who were also outraged in a quite genuine way. But one thing we need to do, I think, the bigger your account gets, the more powerful you are, is to be really careful about instigating that, right? Um, yeah. June pointing out that people will use the block button, but then still tweet about the blocky. Carolina saying, I neither block or mute. I just ignore and scroll on unless it's something deeply wrong, offensive or against my principles. My timeline's full of humor, ideas, support, absurdity, nonsense, just how I like it. Uh, Jasmine saying, I haven't heard of coordinated pylons, but the algorithm will make it so you see tweets from people you engage with. Yeah. So if, if people you're engaging with are disagreeing with someone strongly online, then you will be there too. Um, Sarah's saying, I don't think you're supposed to do it. I just realized I didn't like the idea of someone cutting me out, but still looking at my own timeline. Yeah, that, that's not. And Jasmine's saying, I agree. I block back as well. And people saying that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Shake Star Wars. Yeah, I've got into a couple of Star Wars. And June with great power. Yeah, yesterday I saw a tweet that um, in, in, in a conversation I was in that made me so angry that it took, I nearly had to break my fingers to stop myself from crate tweeting it um, and inviting the universe to come and judge this teacher. Teacher have 500 followers, I've got 12,000. That's not fair. It's not fair, that's bullying. But it, it, it came from a very self-righteous place. I thought I was in the right. Um, has Prog versus Trad died, says Eugene. I don't think we quite know what we mean by prog versus trad that was a fight that had been going on for eight years when i turned up two years ago and i never quite understood it because an awful lot of the sort of like you know liberal left or even anti-capitalist educators i follow like teaching from the front and people sitting in rows and high behavior standards um i don't i never quite understood what it was supposed to mean it seemed like an alignment of um political and pedagogical positions all at once that have become hopelessly muddied. I know Zoe's talked extensively. Um, <laughs> I was very grown up, June. You should have seen the tweet. It was so bad. It was so, so bad. <laughs> ah, um, Zoe's talked endlessly about how it just, it's just not a particularly useful, Travi the prog is not a useful division. And yet it stands in for something else. So not really got to do with the um, philosophy of education at all. Um, sometimes it has to do with political alignment, um, some fake sense that sort of like Govey and the blob argument, um, who they're supposed to be, how that's supposed to map onto economic policy. None of it really makes much sense. Yeah, Sarah's saying, something I find it hard to navigate is the very different context that we all work in and trying to discuss the same thing at the same time. Yeah, and, and that takes us back to, um, situated knowledges 
as I used to say when I was doing my cyborg theory in 1995, we all come from situated knowledges. Um, our, our understanding of both pedagogy and behavior and all of it comes from our very specific situational places. And so quite often, like I read um, Barry Smith's feed and he just is talking about an alien planet to, to where I live. Now I'm not in a desperately fancy school, I'm in a London comprehensive, but generally speaking, the kids are nice, the behavior is good, there's just, it's not a crisis. And yet people who work in crisis schools see crisis behavior, live in a crisis management universe. And it's almost impossible, I think, for us to find useful ways of talking to each other around that. Um, Jasmine's saying, I think prog versus trad is dead, but only because it's clear where most people fall on that spectrum. Yeah, there's a way in which the heat can come out potentially of a discussion about direct instruction and seating plans. If, if, it's, not, if it's not coming with the force of, of you know, power behind it. Remember Pencilgate, of course I remember Pencilgate. Yeah, Jasmine makes sense in her school, wouldn't make sense in, in mine. Yeah, Pencilgate was um, the woman who got piled on for saying she gives detentions for not having equipment. Okay. So, and that's the other thing too, is that we have these conversations on edgy Twitter, but of course they take place in a larger Twitter. Um, and a lot of the, the intersections of those clashes happen when say autistic edgy Twitter runs into no excuses discipline edgy twitter i've been at the heart of some of those crashes over the last two years and they're they're people who have nothing to they have no shared language there right i i understand entirely where both sides are coming from and why they they cannot speak to each other there it just doesn't make sense yeah someone's saying one prolific english teacher who i really like and respect teaches at a private boarding school for girls with fees of 30 grand a year I teach in a very different context and sometimes it's like we're in different jobs. Um, I've been, I've been called sixth form Twitter before and it is a different job. You know, I, I, like half of my teaching mode is key stage five. I manage key stage five. When you're teaching sixth formers you're, who aren't, you know, when you're teaching A-level students, you're essentially teaching grown-ups. Um, it's it's very, much more similar to the undergraduate teaching I've done than to any of the key stage three or four teaching I've ever done. It, you know, there's no behavioral issues there's nothing so the pedagogy is there carolina is saying you'd think people would introduce their context to justify their decisions i think tom starkey suggested that once that um conversations would be a lot more useful if we sort of had a permanent tag attached to the bottom of our tweets saying the kind of school we taught in but he also wanted to include our own educational backgrounds right so just to go to now having spent all of that time getting to 10 past 10 some of the things that were said this weekend, so I'm going to look at uh, Nick Woods first. Um, having been part of Edu Twitter for a while now, the sense of all the things that might be said, have been said, is growing. People rehashing the same discussions, often with books or services to sell, fueling the discourse, makes complete sense. But one mustn't forget that the proportion of teachers on Twitter is growing. So what might seem like rehash to me will be new ground for recent joiners. I had considered leaving, but I'm now thinking that might be the wrong move. Yeah, Ariel saying, I find it quite difficult sometimes because the arguments are so polarized. I normally write my tweet and end up deleting it because I can't be bothered. <laughs> Jasmine saying, in order to choose violence, you must be bored and have time. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I have on more than one occasion pointed out that the big gains we've got from, from the whole cognitive science research revolution are number one, 
don't say everything all at once. That would be cognitive load theory. Break your information up into bits in the broad sense. Number two, kids forget stuff. Work on ways for them to remember stuff, right? And what, and, and to me, but yeah, I've got the point now. I, I, it was helpful. Thank you. Uh, you know, like stuff about ways of building, like reducing that too much all at once, ways of making knowledge sticky. All of that stuff has been incredibly useful. I'm not dismissing it. But unless something radically new and different comes along, I've got that now. But as Nick says, there are new people entering the profession all the time, entering edgy Twitter all the time, who have not read about any of that, who have not been talking about it for two years, who aren't like, I'm bored, now let's move on. Um, and it's really quite fair, unfair. Yeah, well, I think, and Jasmine's saying, I think it might only because we're saying the same things over and over again, except about different articles. Yeah, there's some fights that are um, that are completely endlessly rehashed are over now. One of them is the kind of we live in a perpetual 2012 and some people are perpetually fighting the Department for Education at that point and um, trying to introduce a knowledge rich revolution. And as Jasmine says, it's in the ECF now. Right. Like You guys won. Calm down. You won. Do a victory lap. Um go back to Nick, it's not just about what I can learn from others here, but also what I can share and my opportunity to have a positive impact on the discourse. So I'll stay, even if, cheeky provocation here, the best blogs have been written and apparently the same detritus is repeatedly brought up by agitators with services and books to sell. I love the way he went from, um, <laughs> he went from being beautifully high-minded to, and let's trash here. But fair. The world moves on and some of the things people say and write will help us make it a best place. So Kat Howard, I'm going to read your response. You said, I wonder whether some of this is as more and more people move forward in their thinking and build on the work and ideas of others. I appreciate the diversity of thought is equally just as useful in this process. And Nick says, I'm sure it is. I've seen people who have been here longer than me say they find the discourse repetitive and boring. Personally, I'm seeking to rebalance time between talking about it and doing it. So Jasmine has been saying for a while now, both to herself um, and, and, you know, like via DM and then online that, you know, at this point, she doesn't want any more kind of here's the underlying theory of teaching. Here's the underlying theory of memory. Here's his general schemas for how classrooms work, like teach like a champion type models. Um, but instead, very happy to see it. OK, well, how does that work? Show Show me it in context. Let's, you know specific and useful and applied and that's really what both Kat and Nick are saying here as well but as both of them also saying constantly new people coming in all the time so the, these fights that seem over these things that seem dead and gone these blogs that seem established I mean, some of those are, what 10 years old Adam Boxer had that beautiful list of all the most important blogs he'd ever read um but you know there's that bias when you start doing research about older research like if I if I went and wrote a PhD chapter now and all of my research, the, the most recent stuff was from 2010 or 2012, that would be a distinct problem. I mean, there is a there's a bias towards recent recency. Is that a word? I'm gonna say it is now. That there is a point, there's a value to things coming up again and again. Um Katie Finlinson says, I've had this feeling with every area I've been involved with for a long time just completely it's over the conversation's over but 
new people are constantly coming in and know none of it. Or I get interested in a new area and then I know none of it again. It's probably to do with your expertise rather than Twitter as a whole, which I think is something I was saying about older teachers. It might be that you personally, any of you, any of us might feel that Twitter is dead in terms of learning new educational things or new approaches, but that's because actually you've, you've got expertise in those areas at that point. And what you're really reflecting on is that you're not here for conversations with newbies. Claudia was always pointing that out to me when I was being particularly obnoxious, always saying that it's for new teachers. It's not for you. It's like, you know, guide to the classroom. Well, that's great for you if you think you know this, but how is a new teacher supposed to know this? And that, that's, that's a good point. Going back to you guys' comments. That's a really interesting point, Jasmine. So I need to mute and unfollow all the big guys and only interact with the wee teacher lads. That is really, really interesting. What would that look like? What would that look like indeed? And then people like me, um, or, you know, not, I don't actually tweet that much about theory of education or classroom practice. I run around on Twitter making a mess in public doing other things. But, um, but what, what happens if we, if we stop including the big names in conversations? What happens if we, we all, you know, did a JK Rowling? Well, okay, when I said did a JK Rowling, let me clarify what I mean there. Write a book under a pseudonym and see how it does on its own. Stephen King did that too. How, how would um, The Running Man go if you release it under a different name altogether and it hasn't got the kind of brand of Stephen King or JK Rowling attached to it? Challenge you to set up an anonymous account a new account and go and rejoin EduTwist, but this time only following accounts under 500 people and have conversations and see if they're the same conversations. See if they're interesting, see if they're challenging, see if we're just the same people repeating their entrenched positions over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, Claudie's saying we were all the small voice ones, except Trash Milf, who was always loud. Yeah, I am, I am a loud mouth. Um, yeah, now Zoe is pointing out, and this is something that Sam, when I said he's really good at analysing um, what's actually going on with large accounts, it's interesting that you can already see how few interactions some big name gets. So you'll have 100,000 follower accounts who get 12 engagements with a tweet about education. So they're clearly not being followed because they're part of that conversation. They're being followed for different reasons. And I think... I had a conversation about the decline of blogging, the alleged decline of blogging a while ago. And it was one of the things that's interesting is some of the kind of really instrumental bloggers who, who changed policies at the DFE back in, you know, 2014 or so that, that Michael Gove was name checking. They've gone on to be authors. They're publishing books. They're not putting their stuff out for free. They've, they've built a brand. They're selling things. They've been hired by the DFE. They're, you know, SLT or whatever now, but they, yeah, a certain conversation-based teaching consultant has an awful lot of followers and very little interaction from them, says Claudie. Yeah, Zoe saying how active followers are is something to consider. Some of them are dormant accounts and some very, very big accounts. Like, you know, all of the, the explosion that happened with um, Catherine Burblesing over the weekend, the engagement, there was a lot of discussion about engagement with um, some non-teaching accounts saying that she was being subject to a witch hunt and stuff. But actually, the, the people engaging with boosting her account there aren't 
aren't teachers. That's what I heard a lot of teachers saying. It's not teachers aren't engaged here. It's people who are engaging from other parts of Twitter. So it's not actually got much to do with the conversation about teaching at all whatsoever, despite the fact that it's an enormous high profile account in the teaching world. Yeah, Eugene saying lots of them have numbers after their names. June saying, who are they? Well, they have flags. That <laughs> Russian bots, potentially, and people who really, really, really like England and football. <coughs> uh, David Priest kind of is modeling, um, when in the middle of this discussion, was modeling for us ways in which some of the more established, not older, but longer serving teachers on Twitter could maybe interact more gracefully with um with new accounts and and new questions and people asking what seems like completely tired clapped out stuff for us which is i sometimes think that the best thing i can offer to the twitter staff room is to say that's a great question and try signposting the way the, to where the conversation has been had before like the teacher in the corner who remembers the last time we tried x and what happened and why um i would say about that 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 um Worth considering that not all are nons are box. Yeah, absolutely. The way to get big, says Jasmine, is to go through controversy or controversy, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're from. Ask me how I know. Yeah, ask me how I know too, Jasmine. I mean, the thing is, I didn't, and as I'm sure you did not, I, I did not do this on purpose. This was entirely inadvertent. I'm just a monster on social media. Eugene got loads of new followers yesterday. Yeah, June saying the way we might support children in classes, you don't shut people down for asking questions. Um, you can direct them to answers. But there is a way in which, you know, like David's making a great point, but there's a way in which this is still gatekeeping because then what you're doing is referring people back to, well, here's what Adam said about that five years ago. Here's what David Didow said about that 10 years ago. Here's what old Andrew said about that, you know, 10 years ago. And, and there has to be space for new conversations and new voices, you know, we can't just hoard all the knowledge and glory to ourselves. And that's interesting too, when we think about the possibility of losing our places, whatever size place we have, it is for those of us who are addicted to Twitter, and it's a lot of us, our, the networks we've made, our little place, our little social capital is important to us, right? Um, and, and potentially that can be completely displaced by, by new entrants into the social media scene. Jasmine saying, I didn't mean to, but I was yelling about a lot of things when I first came in Twitter as a trainee. Yeah, absolutely. Jasmine, you're not leaving Edu Twitter. Stop it. Stay on Edu Twitter. Just, just take a break and come back. <laughs> um, yeah, so Ed says that um, <laughs> Ed Finch, who is hilarious as ever, took David's comment about directing people back to the old blogs, the oldies but goodies took uh obviously we're thinking on the same lines about no no people want new you can't say here's a great blog from 2010 no one wants that they want a 2022 blog to feel like their knowledge is fresh and lovely and he says the great thing is that with the majority of teachers on twitter having joined during the pandemic i can copy and paste some of the classic old blogs and put them out under my own name might even get a book deal out of it i'll do daisy's books <laughs> ah. Um, yeah, and then uh, let's see, there's, um, cause someone else said something really interesting about that. Uh, yeah, D David Bishop, um, talks about the, 
you know, when we've joined under our own names, we're really constrained about the social norms of Twitter and the social norms of our school and the social norms of, I think there's, there's few amongst us who've not either been accidentally sucked into the Daily Mail or doesn't know someone who's been accidentally sucked into the Daily Mail for good or bad or just as a supporting tweet comment. But it's a dangerous place to be publicly having loud or unpleasant or um, controversial opinions or to be reacting strongly. So uh, David's saying, um, I've toyed with the idea of having an anonymous account just to get things off my chest. I often use Twitter to let off steam, possibly too much. And one driver for not being anonymous was to make myself be more careful with what I tweet. Anonymity without accountability is a bad thing. Um, and then Cantab Kitty summarizes the limitations of anonymous tweeting. There's no such thing as true anonymous edu tweeting. Once you start interacting regularly with people, they get to know you, even if they wouldn't be able to Google your real name and employer. Um, about your desire to moan about staff and students, I feel like that's the sort of thing best left to private group chats with a small trusted group of people or vent in person to friends, not written down anywhere, no paper trail. Do not be mean about your students. Don't even talk about your students. Um, in that PhD thesis, one of the teachers has to go lock into a lockdown halfway through the um, interview process because she had tweeted some students' work students had complained, she had to shut down her account, not shut it down, but lock it down and remove anything like that, um, which for her was a sort of devastating loss of the social capital that came with the network that she built up and being part of the conversation. So uh, Provoke Pedagogue chimed in at that point. If you do tell no one and never underestimate the lengths some will go to, as you remember, they did a what must have been tens and tens of thousands of pounds worth of investigation to find out where his blog was coming from his school, uh, including taking pictures of his village in Wales to triangulate it with pictures that had appeared on the Twitter feed associated with the blog. There is no true anonymity. Uh, no school shaming, no kid shaming, off limits, says Jasmine. Yeah. Zoe, you're off, off it all soon anyway. <laughs> Carolina says, I can attest that Halfway is not a big account and her first name is Half and her surname is not in a non-bot account and her surname is Way. So there you go, Halfway. <laughs> um, then Mike Hill had an interesting one on edufads, which, you know, I'm coming up to the very end of this, but I thought I'd introduce this because it's something that, um, that Zoe is pointing out and always points out as a really good thing. Um, if we look at where people are exposed to misinformation on Facebook versus Twitter. It's Facebook, I put this stat up when I was advertising the show, uh, people were exposed, 50% of them were exposed to the idea that the coronavirus vaccine was going to implant uh, chips in your brain to have you controlled. On Twitter, that figure was 10%. And there's a way in which on Twitter, um, we're much better as a platform and as a huge sprawling community at not seeing nonsense or at regulating nonsense. So I put it to you that that's potentially true of edu Twitter as well. So Zoe says access to research protects us and access to research via edu Twitter therefore protects us. There was less of a focus on an access to research in the past. It made it harder to challenge something that wouldn't work. Knowledge empowers people to say no. If the culture is still one where leaders say yes, then nothing will move them away from that though. So that, um, you know, all of this, this 
geographically flat. It might be socially displaced and power might be elsewhere, but you can access things even if your access increases the larger your network is. But it allows us to at least hold our schools, what we're being told, to accountability. Here's what Adam said to that. Access to research hasn't stopped a veritable tide of untrammeled shite from being executed in its name. CF, dual coding, metacognition, knowledge maps, etc., etc., ad nauseam. So I think because I have to finish, that's where I'll just about leave us now. Let me just go back to some of, yeah, I did say I've mentioned Mike's points and I've just mentioned the ones in response. He says, um, da, 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 da. It can be hard for teachers in English schools to say, no, I don't want to do or use this. Thanks, but no thanks. I think that's partially why fads like blooms and thinking hats could become so ubiquitous as they did, often, often very probably against teachers' better judgment and private doubts. The elephant in the room is that we still have these structures in schools now. That's why I'm sceptical of whole school teaching and learning and why I think that we're just as likely to fall for edufads today. People sometimes argue that we're less likely to fall for fads now because we're more research aware as a profession. However, things like Blooms or De Bono did have some sort of research base. Meanwhile, not everything that is popular in schools now has a huge evidence base. And that is huge on edu Twitter, such as Teach Like a Champion, or its evidence base relates to underlying principles rather than how schools are actually applying them. For example, dual coding. I don't, don't mean that these are necessarily bad things. I just really don't think that research says protects us very well against edu fads. And I think if we go back to the social capital there, it's important to remember that we are prone to become fads, faddish, that, that fads, if fads are led from large accounts, from large power centers, from, from places with big social capital, those smaller voices that might push back will not be heard. Right. Uh, Jasmine's saying, I don't know, you can't change the system from the bottom up, you need SLT. I think the kind of unnerving thing to realise is that tiny, tiny accounts, which might be challenging Goliath, etc, etc, actually just won't get seen. That's not how the algorithm works, that's not how network works, that's not how power and social media works, it's not flat, it's not evenly distributed. And some people say that research doesn't matter, only experience, yeah. All right, you guys have been absolutely glorious to talk to this morning. Um, it has been really fun and I am going away now. Please, let's continue this conversation everywhere. Always, <laughs> Caroline is saying that she's blocked and deleted all of us. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Bye, everyone. Have a lovely bank holiday. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.